Hello and welcome to the Ted Tail Business Show, the best place for actionable advice for entrepreneurs. This is Ted, your brand and host speaking. On today's show, we'll learn about the power of customer surveys with Sam McNerney. Now, Sam is the founder of McNerney Insights in Marketing. With a passion in behavioral science, an impressive track record working for organizations such as Publicis New York and serving clients including Procter & Gamble, Walmart and Citibank, Sam fell in love with the power of customer surveys and to date, he has conducted over 300 customer surveys involving over 100,000 respondents. Join us as Sam shares about the power of customer surveys and how you too can harness his power. All these and more after this quick commercial break. Hey guys, it's Ted. Thank you so much for joining me on my show and for all the support. If you ever found any value from the show, I would love if you could subscribe to the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with somebody who will find it useful as well. All episodes, tools and resources are available on tattoo.com. So make sure you log on to tattoo.com. That's T-E-D-T-E-O.com. And make sure you sign up for the newsletter if you want to hear updates from me directly. And now let's dive right in. Hey Sam, thank you for joining us today. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. So Sam, let's dive a simple icebreaker so we can get to know you better. Please share with us, who is Sam McNerney when he isn't working? Uh, Sam's a, a big reader. Uh, Sam likes it. You're speaking to basically the poster child of the humanities. Uh, graduated with a degree in philosophy, but then later on got really into uh, psychology and always kind of had a soft spot for um, English class. And so outside of work, although I see these two things kind of inherently connected, I'm reading and just trying to soak in good ideas, interesting people, anything to uh, inspire me with a new new way of thinking, new ideas, um, I, you know, just in, in the spirit of having a, a fresh, interesting perspective. Cool. Sounds like Sam is a deep reader. Now, Sam, I understand you recently started your own customer research consulting firm. But before we speak a little bit more about that, could you share with us how you developed your own expertise in this area? Well, the I'll skip over the early to mid-20s portion of, of my life and jump right into the, the bulk of my career where the, the, I kind of picked up some of these skills. And that was at Publicis. The uh, creative agency, the flag uh, in New York, the flagship agency of Publicist Group, which is one of those giant uh, holding companies within the marketing and communications industry, um, and I was really lucky there. I was embedded in a what you might call an insights department. It was comprised of some SEO folks, some data science folks, and um, n n although not at first, I eventually ran a two-person. Uh, behavioral, behavioral science team. And our job is basically to sell in research and insight solutions to existing clients and uh, within the publicist group and, um, and, and played a role in, in new business. And it's there that I kind of fell in love reluctantly because I went into this thinking. <laughs> reluctantly. The, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I say that because I went into it thinking market research is, is very boring and dry. Um, and yet I kind of... Oh, you eventually fell in love with it. Yeah, I fell in love with uh, survey-based... Uh, research. By the way, I still kind of think that. Uh, the thing I changed my mind about is the uh, uh, surveys more of a blank canvas than uh, a rigid technology. Namely, as there's way more creativity involved and it's really up to the, the user to uh, generate the most value from it. So, um, But that's really, uh, publicist is really where I learned how to um, 
not just do research and surveys, but uh, all the other stuff that's probably even more important to pulling out of insights, answering the client questions, presenting, and uh, everything that um, would, um, you know, to, to the earlier point about the blank canvas, really bring, bring the image to life and place it in a relevant location and satisfy the, the person that um, commissioned the art. So Sam, you cut your teeth in one of the largest publicist groups in the world. So in your own words, what is your current value proposition with your consulting firm? And maybe more importantly, how are you setting yourself apart from the publicist group that you were from before? Uh, in, in, in essence, I, I help uh, DTC brands uh, find and test uh, benefit claims and positioning statements. Uh, I, I, this is new territory relative to publicists. Publicists is the world of giant global brands, various P&G brands, Walmart. I was lucky enough to, to work with them. The, uh, and, and now, um, because it's, it's, I don't have the weight of this huge corporation behind me, uh, I've naturally fallen in with the small to medium size uh, e-commerce uh brands, as, as I mentioned, direct to consumer, although not exclusively DTC. I see you have actually niched down in the DTC direct to consumer market. But share with us, Sam, why did you choose to niche down in this specific market? I, lo- I love this tier of company, uh, this tier of business for uh, pr- probably two reasons. One, it just seems like a nice fit. They don't have the budget to pay Nielsen $500,000 or McKinsey even more to do some piece of research. Yeah, I'm sure they cost a bomb. And they also probably don't need to hire full time a a researcher. Um, and yet they still have to answer questions about their their customers. They all the second reason is it's way easier to root for the founders or a head of growth at one of these companies. Yeah, I can totally see what you mean. You actually get to work directly with the founders itself and have a direct impact on the work that they're doing. To work with them directly and see your contributions have a direct, again, as opposed to working with a brand manager at um, uh, Oral-B or Swiffer or um a division of Walmart responsible for, say, online grocery pickup. Yeah, I guess because in these situations, you're working with a brand manager as opposed to the founders themselves. This is the the, the founder of a smaller, medium-sized brand has quite a lot of responsibility. Like they cannot just go away. They tend to be extremely passionate, which I have that in common with them. They've put a lot on the line. And I guess that passion can be very infectious, right? Yes. And they're origin stories are uh, usually uh, take the form of an underdog story and I'm lucky enough to meet them when they're gaining some momentum. Oh man, Sam, I love that. So guys, yes, of course, we all know that we need to niche down in business, but that's basic, right? So the takeaway here is how Sam actually niched down into the target market that he wanted to help. Sam was very strategic in the way that he chose to help the direct-to-consumer market because he realized there were a lot of companies out there who needed his help, who actually couldn't afford the larger firm's fees. And not only did he actually manage to slide himself into that market, he also found that he is actually very passionate about the stories that they have and the directions that they are moving with their companies. And it's that personal investment that's probably giving him the extra push to do a lot more for his customers. So guys, when you actually niche down to your own target audience, did you actually apply such a similar analysis as to where you can make the biggest impact? It could be worthwhile thinking about it. Trust me. 
Now, Sam, I know that your key methodology when it comes to customer research is to use an old-school, low-tech customer survey. Could you share with us why is this still a relevant tool in today's business market? Let me um, g- give a little bit of uh, background on, on surveys because they don't get a lot of love and they should. One early hero here, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to your question directly, is this guy named Charles Booth. And I, and I just love this story. He's British and he's um, living in the late 19th century. And he is famous for basically going around London in the late 19th century, door to door, and asking people for their to estimate their annual household income. He spends uh, years, like like seven, eight years, Whoa. collecting all uh, the annual hin- in- income of, of residents in London. And with that, he creates this, essentially what's one of the first income maps of the city. And, and he then, it, it then ends up playing a really essential role in Parliament passing one of the first welfare uh, pieces of legislation that's, that revolves around welfare. Because for the first time, you could actually measure uh, something like a poverty line and the percent of residents who live under it and above it. And you, if you think about it, you really can't pass much meaningful uh, economic legislation without first measuring how much money people are making. Uh, we, we kind of take that for granted now, but uh, you know, for the vast, vast majority of human history, we, just, we didn't know those those key data points. Yeah, I guess that's very true. And this is probably the first time that's really brought to light. Extrapolating from Booth, pretty much any um, meaningful uh, gain made in, in healthcare, education, economics, which, which I just mentioned, uh, all stems from survey-based research in, in the early 20th century and continues on to this day. Because, you know, after all, you can't, you can't make progress until you uh, are, are measuring the thing that, that you're trying to change. So I know when, when people think of surveys, they think of some really tacky uh, post-purchase, I know, how was your flight today? Is there anything we could do better type communication that appears in their inbox as quickly as it is deleted? But um, the surveys still matter uh, in the what, what you might call active data collection. And that's when you need to expose someone to a new benefit claim or a positioning statement, something that uh, maybe doesn't exist yet and get their reaction to it. Uh, now, there's an art to that interaction, and, and we can get into that. But the passive data collection, there's no substitute for that. It can certainly complement it, and you, and you definitely want to know what people do versus what they say. Uh, but when it comes to finding words and images that might distinguish your brand uh, or uh, words and images that might accompany a new product um, or, or a new strategic direction or a new concept statement, something that um, is going to be put into the world and, and people are going to react to, the, that, that more active data collection is, is really important. And a lot of times that takes the form of a survey. Uh, not necessarily, you know, focus groups, in-depth interviews are really good here, ethnographies, um, again, anything that really involves actually, uh, you know, like a conscious human being having to respond to something. Um, I, I just happen to be uh, uh, kind of more in the corner of, 
of the survey-based research. Uh, thank you for explaining, Sam. When you broke it down like that, it really puts things into perspective and it really helps me understand that, okay, surveys are still very relevant, especially when you're looking for that human reaction. Okay. Now, Sam, since you're an expert in this area, could you share with us what advice would you give to another entrepreneur who's looking to run customer surveys? How should they structure it? Uh, before you even get to the mechanics of the survey, um, just just do do the do the basic basic stuff. Uh, you know, be, be really clear about the thing you want to measure and uh, how it aligns with with uh, your strategy and how that strategy connects with your with your broader objectives. Perhaps that sounds obvious, but uh, I've just seen quite a few times that uh, 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 people kind of rushing to Google Forms or Google Survey and and uh, jotting down some questions without really kind of thinking through what it is that, that you that you want to measure. This, this is hard, by the way. You know, oh, what do we want to measure? That should be easy, but yeah. I guess it sounds easy on paper, but it's really hard to execute well. The other the other suggestion I would give here is the. Uh, if your survey is too long, it's wrong. But the less is more heuristic here. It, it really has this way of being true in all sorts of industries. So uh, by that, I mean really a- aim to have a survey that doesn't take a respondent more than one minute to complete. And if it takes them more than one minute, you may not have identified the thing that you actually want to measure. Mm, interesting insight, Sam. I guess since the point of a survey is to really get to the heart of the matter of a certain question you're asking, the shorter you structure the survey, the more effective it will likely be. So guys, as Sam has said, try to keep your surveys short and sweet. If they can't actually finish the survey within one minute, then maybe the questions aren't structured well enough. Now, Sam, so apart from keeping the survey under one minute, what other tips can you share? Yeah, the, another good rule of thumb I like is the question should stand on its own. So, um, meaning you, if you can put the question on a slide and show it to another person, they always kind of get the point. Uh, so the example that comes to mind from publicists is the uh, if if all your office bathrooms are stocked with Charmin toilet paper, uh, you know, would you be excited? Question, which is something something I actually did for Charmin, and all well, based on a true story, by the way, of. The office having this, the well, my response was yes, and uh, the the majority of responses were yes, and the office switched had to switch away from two ply toilet paper for plumbing reasons. So this caused quite an uproar. <laughs> Gosh, um, we couldn't, so we couldn't use Charmin anymore. Anyways, that's a good example of you know using your own subjectivity or your own experiences to inform a, a what turned out to be a great brand equity question you could swap out Charmin for all its competitors ask the same question you know you you, you impose this situation on people as opposed to asking them for their their preference or or a price point that they're comfortable with and um, so anyways it's a good uh, it's a great question because you can put it on a slide and people will uh, uh, kind of see what's going on there the stripping away of context and uh, you know, if this really is number one in brand equity, uh, that you know, in such a situation where that people have no other choice, they they should be excited by using it. So, guys, apart from having to keep your survey within about one minute to make sure that you can quickly get to the root of the answer that you're looking for from your customers, 
make sure that the questions that you pose to them do not require too much explanation from you. So the overall point to remember is to always be very clear and concise when you're structuring your survey and the questions that form it. Now Sam, here's my next question. Would a good approach on thinking about how to structure the questions be to think of the desired outcome that you want and reverse engineer your way back there? Yeah, it's, it's a great way to think about it. And um, as we, and maybe this is a good time just to make uh, a distinction here between, uh, and one would be the, the, the distinction between getting feedback on a piece of content versus doing what you might call consumer insights research. So getting piece, uh, getting feedback on a piece of content is, um, you know, questions like, hey, we've got a list of benefit claims and we, we want to know what people think about them. Or, hey, we, we've, we, uh, we just rewrote some of the, the copy on the main header on our homepage and we want to know if our positioning is coming through. And, or, 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 hey, we have this new image and or strategic direction or concept statement. And we want to show it to people. And uh, so let's just, you know, that, that's kind of bucket number one. And that's, that's by the way, where the less is more mm -hmm. approach really, really kind of comes through. And in, in the other bucket is, is kind of the broader world of consumer insights. This, by the way, is a lot of, uh, a lot of research that goes on in the big global brands, P&G, Walmart, as I mentioned earlier, because their brands are super valuable assets to them. And they want to invest in keep keeping them relevant to the latest trends. And they're super rich. So they do they can afford to go out and do kind of these bigger, broader studies on culture, people uh, and just to kind of make sure that that their their key asset is positioned correctly. Um, and it's in that world that um, I I like to kind of break the rules and and not be objective or neutral or like to you know bias the participant and and here my working model as you've already hinted at is more like a stand-up comedian or a magician who someone that has a an idea about and kind of a, a a desired reaction and then works backwards to uh, figure out the right words or combination of moves in order to get people to react that way uh in other words marketing you know you 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 start out with with a product and an audience and then you have to work backwards to figure out how to get people to like it uh this is an opposition to the more scientific or economic way of doing things where you you know figure out what people like and then you create the product and then figure out a way to get the product to those people and it, it's just a helpful way to, uh, for me to, to think about, um, uh, you know, finding that key insight or a way of thinking uh, that can help a brand, uh, you know, write stronger value propositions, uh, positioning statements, et cetera. Um, again, this is as opposed to asking people, you know, you know, what do you like or what do you prefer? It's kind of bringing them. Uh, an, an idea and our observation and then using that and using the survey as a way to kind of uh, test out the messaging or the combination of words that allows them to see what, what you're seeing. And then if you can do that, you're just in a slightly better position to actually write the copy and, and, and bring to life the, the idea or the strategy, because now, you know, some of the language and the words that work.
Mm, okay, I see now. There are very important distinctions between the two segments of custom research as you have explained. Sam, now that you have shared with us some tips on how to structure a good survey and the questions that form it, maybe you could take some time to actually explain to us how you've helped your customers along the way. Sure, absolutely. Well, so as I said at the beginning, there's kind of two two main buckets where I help the, the, the finding and testing of benefit claims and positioning statements. And number one, um, the, the, I mean, a, a project that most comes to mind although I can't mention the the client is um, yeah, for sure is is a situation the situation was a situation a lot of founders are are in where they have a great product and there's something that really is genuinely uniquely valuable about it and yet if they look around within their their category everyone's kind of using the same uh, language and ma- making and you can't same, stand out yeah making the same claims I was just doing a little audit of uh, the white noise machine market Mm-hmm. And I'm just always surprised, right? Like pick a pick a market, whether it's candles or uh, soap or white noise machines. There's just a dozen or two uh, competitor brands, all seemingly with pretty good products, kind of saying the same thing. Like, uh, you know, backed by science, uses less energy, uh, it, c- it comes with battery in case there's a power outage. You know, no need to use. Uh, apps uh, can, drowns out. I see, and it's impossible basically for them to stand out. Yeah, and and on and on and on. Like your kids can go to sleep with the other with his siblings snoring. You can have a party in the living room and not have to worry about waking up the baby. Drowns out street noise. Drowns out neighbors. And so, how do you kind of cut through and uh, with some words that both drive sales and differentiate the brand? And so, a, a really helpful how I kind of walk into that situation is to work with clients both to take their existing claims and help them generate some new ones based on an entire audit of the category uh, and then find claims that are appealing and unique relative to the rest of the category. I think that second step is really important um, because you don't, you know, the old line, like if you A-B test 10 mediocre claims, you'll find the best mediocre claim. You want to put it uh, in in um, m- m- compare it to all, all the other claims within the category, which, which you can pretty easily get by doing a scrape of Amazon reviews and uh, of the home pages of, of uh, the, the, the big players within the category. Uh, and then you, uh, from there, uh, so, so you can run a test along those dimensions. It can kind of p- appeal and uniqueness. And then from there, just be in a little bit of a better position to uh, find the, the words that work, which which can un- unlock a variety of things. It's always different per project, whether it's, um, you know, helping to uh, reduce the, you know, ad spend per acquisition or helping to uh, uh, f- find some keywords that, that you can own or, or develop a hero product that, you know, gives you le- leverage in a retail space um, and, and, and just, you know, conversion in general. Um, Anyways, that's mm-hmm. uh, on on the positioning side. The help, uh, I mean, the my specialty here, as I joke, is uh, EBQs are extremely basic questions, and and this involves using surveys to send people from a brand's target market to uh, the brand's homepage or landing page, and asking them really simple questions like, "Are are you one hundred percent clear about what this company sells?" Um, and then in a quick follow up, and if they say no. Yeah, they say no, or if they say yes, and then I ask them in a follow-up, what, what, what is it that they sell? And 
the other questions are, you know, is it clear to you that this brand provides a unique benefit you can't find anywhere else? Um, you know, yes or no. And is that benefit valuable to you? And we're, really, that's it. Um, the, that's about 90, you know, so, sometimes I incorporate some custom asks uh, as needed. But those are the big, that's the really the, ba- the main uh, part of the, the survey work with respect to the the positioning statements is the uh, you know is it clear is it unique and is it valuable and from there you you can uh, you know combined with a, a founders or a head of growth's own positioning goals name you know what do you want people to think you sell uh, what do you think your unique benefit is uh, you can have a really curious Sam have your customers ever been surprised maybe by the results that you helped them obtain the service that you ran <laughs> okay so no one's been shocked. But there's, I don't think anyone has been uh, not at least a little bit surprised because just psychologically, it's so hard to see the thing that you've created with fresh eyes. Uh, Yes, it's that idea of having a blind spot over your own work. So I guess that's one of the very key propositions that you provide your clients as well, Sam. Not only do you have that expertise on how these questions can be run well, you should provide them with a fresh pair of eyes and maybe catch something that they were not aware about. Even before that, just clarity. Um, so, so mm-hmm. yeah, obviously, this is all in the name of you know growing the audience and and um, increasing your conversion rate and all that. But even before you get to appeal, you know, it doesn't resonate. You you can get to the clarity bit. Namely, you can be a hundred percent sure that that your the shoppers are hearing and agreeing with your with your key message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that. It gives a little bit of weight to uh, one way to think about that is it gives a little little bit of weight to your bounce rate namely you it's one thing for someone to bounce who doesn't have a clear idea of what you even sell or what your value prop is and it's another thing for someone to bounce but to have a very clear idea of what you sell because then they can actually come back to you maybe sometime in the future when they actually need the product again they they're probably more likely to do that than the former group so again even before you get to uh uh, appeal and conversion rate it's helpful to not skip over the clarity do they understand uh, part so it, it, it really helps uh, in that area it's interesting I, I that I don't know why that skipped over so much uh, I think it's because people might be kind of scared to stand up in the room and say do people know what we sell <laughs> yeah but it's definitely something that's very important to figure out right from the start now, Sam, I understand that one of your core services is, of course, to reach out to hundreds of thoroughly vetted shoppers to actually take the survey. But how do you actually find these individuals and make sure that they are in the demographics they are looking for? So this is probably the most annoying part of what um, I do, which, which should be good for clients because then they don't have to do it. Uh, but you, and, and a lot of people don't realize this, again, along similar lines of what we talked about earlier with the history of surveys, but there's a massive industry for uh, that involve businesses um, providing platforms for panels, uh, which can be comprised of thousands or tens of thousands or more of people, uh, and then linking up those panels with people like me that need a respondent for a survey. And I mean, some of these claims seem almost too outrageous, but you know, you know, a hundred million people at your fingertips at your fingertips that you can 
poll at any given day, you know, any demographic. Um, who, who knows what the actual number is? But the point is, it's a ton. And, and right now, it, 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 we really are kind of living in this incredible time uh, in which you, you can go on SurveyMonkey and, and let's just say design a, a survey and, and get 200, let's say, uh, mothers with two children from the Midwest to answer a series of questions uh, really in an afternoon. And so, so really the challenge isn't reach or technology, but it's, it's, it's the question asking. It's like, okay, what do, what do you want to know? What question do you want to ask them? Keep, keep in mind and the other kind of OG in this space is George Gallup, who uh, emerged in the 1930s as a public opinion pollster later, which I not find this so interesting, then uh, hired David Ogilvy, the the kind of the OG of Madison Avenue, and worked with, yeah, worked with him to do some polling work for Hollywood. They actually played this really influential role and in um, a whole bunch of decisions that the big production companies made, everything from uh, uh, filming big movies and uh, releasing them in black and white and color, who to cast. Um, so, so they actually had this huge, huge role in shaping culture and not just measuring it. Uh, but anyways, Gallup in the 30s, when he was more doing the political stuff, he's famous for the correctly forecasting the 1936 election going to FDR at a time when everyone was uh, making a forecast to, to, the, to his opponent. And he would, he would have to hire like thousands of people to go walk around the streets uh, and go through towns. To physically polled them. Yes, opinions, with like clipboards. Right? And he was really uh, methodologically careful. So he had to get all, all the demographics to... Uh, so to make sure that he was getting representative samples. I mean, can you imagine that? That I mean, this isn't as bad as Charles Booth, but he, he's uh, so much manual. Yeah, walking, it's so difficult. Yeah, I mean, imagine walking the streets of Brooklyn in, in the 1930s and asking people, "Hey, how much money do you make?" and and all this stuff. And, Owen, would you be willing to answer a few? I mean, there was this honeymoon phase where people kind of fell in love with the public opinion poll, and then that faded pretty quickly. But um, Anyways, the point is these days it's like you can do in four hours what it took Gallup and uh, his army of pollsters uh, like months. Um, yeah, and I'm skipping over the whole them sending in the results and the analysis and the, the publication. I mean, this is all involving lots of paper and and pollsters making uh confusing scribbles and jotting down notes in a bad way and, and on and on and on. So it's the technology is so good that now we've come down to this. Um, so what question are you going to ask uh, problem? Now, so the technology actually helps to reach out to these individuals to get them to participate in the survey. Yeah. There, there's still a bit of, uh, there, you know, you have to know how to spot bots and crappy answers and you got to have to know what, what to d delete and there's a number of tricks not tricks but things you can intentionally incorporate into a survey to make sure mm, so the, i guess there's some telltale signs that you can yeah or or per, uh, more common is a person doing it but it's just not answering responsibly um so you know if you just 
if you just do a like a one through 10 question, anyone can kind of answer that without being detected uh, with, with, as a kind of a bad survey taker or a bot. So certain things you can do. Um, but I said, this is like the nerdier QA part of surveying that people probably aren't that interested in. But if they're doing a survey, you know, it's important. So guys, as Sam has said, maybe if you're looking to do your survey online, make sure that you're aware that it's a possibility that the survey may actually be taken by bots. So people are not really taking it very seriously. So try to find ways to weed it out. And I'm sure if you need help, please feel free to reach out to Sam. I'm sure he'll give you some tips. So again, Sam, even though the idea of a customer survey sounds easy, there seems to be really a science behind the whole thing. Asking the right questions, doing all, I mean, it, 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 the analog here might be uh, you want an auto body shop a trusted auto body shop mechanic who just fixes things and keeps it simple. Uh, and that, and you don't have to, you drop the car off, you don't have to worry about it. Um, and yeah, so the, and and then the, the, the bigger, um, guys, I mean, really at the top is like Ipsos or Nielsen. Uh, they do have the, the survey expertise in kind of the cold heart stats major way which is totally different from the humanities ask the right questions and keep it simple way. Um, but they kind of lack the uh, personalized industry touch. So I'm trying, I'm hoping that there's, um, I mean, I know, I know from, from experience that there is, but uh, I'm hoping that there's, that there's um, a lot of my potential customers can kind of see the confluence of, of the uh of these skills you know like the statistical rigor of a nielsen uh with the you know the creativity uh required to ask good questions uh combined with uh let's call it the you know strategic chops to uh guide a piece of research in a way that actually uh helps is, is helpful versus not helpful Mm-hmm. Now, Sam, if the listeners only remember one thing from today's conversation, what you like it to be? That I've uh, helped small to medium-sized DTC brands find and test benefit claims and positioning statements. So how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want your help? Uh, well, the sammagnerney.com is, is uh, really by far the easiest way. The email is listed there and they can just drop me a line. Now, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us the power of customer service and how they can be done well. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Ted, thank you. You've given me an opportunity to talk about uh, Charles Booth and George Gallup, two people that I don't think anyone really care about. And thanks for letting me tell the uh, heroic story of the survey and its huge role in the 20th century and beyond. So yeah, thanks again. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining Sam and I on today's show. I hope you've learned the power of customer surveys and how you can actually bring it into a part of your business as well. Now, as before, if you've received any value from the show, I would love if you could subscribe to the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and to share the show with somebody who find it useful as well. All updates, tools, and resources, and my email list are available on tedteo.com. That's T-E-D-T-E-O.com. That's all for me today. I'll see you guys next time.